This week's Eldritch Lawcast, we have Joe Rasso joining us to talk all about Fables 2, Pirates of the Ethereal Expanse, and just how good that cinematic trailer is. And we take a look at just how big you can get with the new Unearthed Arcana Giants. All that and more now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, the number one D&D podcast in the world. My name is Ben Byrne, and I am here with James Hake, Dale Kingsmill, and joining us this week, special guest sitting in for Sean Merwin is Joe Rasso. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. I have to ask, do you consider yourself to be more of a fae, a fiend, an elemental, an undead creature? Um, can I say none of the above? Um, Absolutely. I'm just this eldritch figure in the shadows. How about that? Gotcha. All right. Yeah. An aberration. Perfect. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Dale, what about you? What do you consider yourself in a, a D&D monster type context? Uh, I feel, I mean, it feels very, um, sort of self-gratifying to say it, but I think I, I would have to fall on the side of Faye. <laughs> Do you think there's any other uh, creature types that you think would be self-gratifying? Like nobody's like, oh, I'm an undead and proud of it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Reppin. It's good. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I think Faye's the best one. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. Uh, James, what about you? Oh, uh, it, it also seems incredibly self-indulgent for me to kind of long to be dragon in human form. Oh, but there it is. That is absolutely the one. <laughs> if I could be anyone, it would be that. Fair, yeah. No, those are the good ones. Fae, dragon, elemental. Everything else is just, you're, you know, I'm an ooze, I think. Hey, I just, you're an ooze? And vampires. Undead got some good stuff in there. Yeah, okay, that's true. Uh, that's true. That's fair. If you're um, an ooze, at one point, Ben, during um, the Dusk game with MCDM, we were fighting a jelly and I absentmindedly started singing, I like aeroplane jelly, aeroplane jelly for me. Like, and everyone en- lost it. They had no idea what was going on. Yeah, they I was about to say. Hey, does, it, does anybody else here know yeah, what is, is aeroplane jelly? <laughs> yeah, Basically, even the yeah. Brit didn't know. <laughs> the pom couldn't back me up on that one. Everyone who's Australian right now listening to this podcast just lost their minds. They're like, oh, my God, I haven't heard that in years. Oh, they're frothing at the mouth. They're like, yeah. And now everybody's saying not happy Jan to each other as well. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's going off in Australian podcast land. Anyway, we're not in Australian <laughs> podcast land. We're in D&D podcast land. Um, uh, Let us set sail from Australia into the ethereal expanse. We mentioned last week uh, that uh, Fables 2, Pirates of the Ethereal Expanse, is coming in July. 1st of July, it will drop. Um, But I am so excited this week because we have the cinematic trailer, which I think will be up by the time this podcast has gone live. It's definitely gone live in our Discord server in the Choo Choo Hype Train uh, little chat. So if you're there, (laughs) go check it out because I have never been so excited for a cinematic trailer. Uh, Joe, you've taken over from James on this project um, as pulling the writing team together. What are you most excited for uh, people to explore when this finally uh, sets sail? Well, the the story's fantastic. Uh, uh, Joey's pulled together a tremendous team of writers that uh, I'll overuse the the phrase. I think it's a North American knocking it out of the park. Uh, but uh, the the, uh, the the writers are fantastic. I, I can't wait to actually start sharing the stories that they they pulled together. And uh, the the art team is is uh, making some gorgeous stuff. Like once you see that trailer, it's mm. uh, it's pretty damn impressive. And that that sort of imagery carries out through through each of the volumes. So. It's a, it's a really impressive feat. I'm I'm just really coming along for the ride. All the hard work's been done, and I'm just <laughs> oh yeah. There's a period missing there. Um, every all the hard stuff's been done. It's it's fantastic. Great yeah. time to come in. Perfect. Yeah, do, doing a do's style, just sliding in at the last minute and then going like, yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> you say that, Joe, but there's a lot of behind the scenes work that was left to do when I when I had to mosey on. Uh, and and you've been killing it. You really have. Well, thank you. It's all um, those bugs, killing those bugs. 
<laughs> the the cinematic trailer is honestly fantastic and in terms of talk, talking about the artwork, setting a, a vibe and atmosphere. We had someone in the Discord say that they are nostalgic for this place even though they have never been there just from watching the trailer. It does have a, a real... So nice. uh, the way that I described it was like pirate cyberpunk fantasy. There was like a real mm. twilight cyberpunk beauty to it. Um, James, you've been working on the cinematic or you've seen the cinematic trailer kind of as it's being put together. Are you excited for folks to see it? Oh, I'm thrilled. Yeah. Um, this, this cinematic trailer is a real, uh, is it indulgent to say tour de force? It's an incredible work <laughs> that uh, our art director, Zoe Robinson was a, uh, uh, in charge of coordinating with um, with an animator uh, and basically pulled in a lot of art that you will see throughout this fable and worked with an animator who just, now I'm going to start saying it, knocked it out of the park um, <laughs> by taking otherwise still images and doing some of, uh, I think, the, the best still image to, uh, to limited animation conversion that I've seen in a long mm-hmm. time. Mm. Really good. Um, it, it it tops even our first Fables trailer, which I thought was pretty great too. To yeah, they really are like setting. I've just now that you've mentioned that setting the um the bar in terms of setting atmosphere and tone because the the two trailers couldn't be more different from each other, mm-hmm. but both of them do just the perfect job in terms of um in the middle of the Fables one trailer when they start talking about like when you stand in the court of the blood drinkers talking about the Astoian Empire and there's that dun 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 kind of like music drop I just think about that constantly in terms of like yeah like things just got sinister this feels really um sinister so yeah go links will be everywhere show notes and probably up over there um or there speaking of the music before we move on from it I want to shout out one more time uh Colm Robinson or Colm Robinson Colm McGinnis Cole McGinnis, uh, the, uh, who did music both for uh, our first fable and now for this one. Here he gets to kind of return to his home sort of core because mm. a lot of his music is very is very folk and sea shanty in feeling. He gets to sing on this one. He does such a great job of doing storytelling and world building and setting building uh, just from what he sings about in this sea song um, in, in a way that he wasn't really able to in our very first Fables trailer, which had a more of a cinematic uh, epic tone mm. to it. This one is epic as well, but in a very different way, very, very nautical, piratical way, which is, of course, uh, exactly what we wanted. Is he also the, because I actually was going to ask this, is he also the voice actor? Like he he does the whole thing. He sings the song and he also voices before the, the song starts because I've just been quoting his lines in the office as well. Just going like, let me tell you a fable. <laughs> like, it's just, it's so good. It's so good. Yeah. Colm voices Oshin the Bard who appears in the later episodes of this fable gotcha. as a character that you can meet and who has a lot of sort of skullduggerous uh, questing opportunities for you as you go up against the kingdom of Iris and the Caroline Empire uh, throughout all of this. Um, and you might even be able to recruit him onto the crew of your ship as well if you play your cards right. He's a very cool character, and mm. he was kind of ideal as the linchpin for this trailer. Mm. Yeah, and speaking of crews, I love the last line as well where he's like, you know, you're looking for a crew, and it's like, all right, get the crew together. Let's go. We're going to be we're gonna mm-hmm. be ethereal pirates. Um, dropping, like I said, 1st of July, but the trailer, cinematic trailer should already be up. Um, if there's not a link to that, there'll be a link to the Discord, and it's there, so you can go check it out. And speaking of arcane things, uh, Wizards of the Coast dropped an unearthed arcana this week all about giants. Um, I glanced in at it. I had a a quick look um, and I thought to myself that barbarian is going to have a lot of fun shot putting folks around the (laughs) battlefield constantly. Um, Dale, what did you think? Uh, You know, I I think it needs some cooking. I think it needs some cooking. Um, I really like the wizard subclass. I think that was fun. Um, I think the druid looked like a lot of fun as well. Uh, It did remind me once again that the druid can do everything that the ranger is known for, but better. Um, But I think the barbarian subclass is an interesting one to look at in terms of some of its elements seem like they do nothing. 
and uh, I would like them to do more. You know, like if things like add rage damage to thrown weapon attacks. For me, that's something that should have been included already as just part of being a barbarian. That seems that that's the kind of thing that I would hand wave and include anyway. Um, sure. So it doesn't seem like much of an increase. And then you get to things like um, the growing in size, which of course it was going to happen. They're giants. It has to happen. You got to include it. But <laughs> I, it, it is, it's one of those things where we've had um, a pretty standard uh, thing in within 5e design where they resist uh, letting players play sizes larger than medium because mm-hmm it starts to become a problem when it comes to things like squares that you threaten. I can't say threaten squares because that's technically a different thing, but you know you know what I'm saying. Squares that you can attack yeah, uh, sure. on the grid. Um, because, I mean, let's. I did do the maths earlier. Let's see. So a medium creature with a five-foot reach, so this isn't even including reach weapons, threatens eight squares, all right? The minute that you're large, still just with a five-foot reach, you threaten 12 squares. Okay. Now- for this barbarian subclass, you quite quickly get to become large and your your reach increases by five feet. So it's not a 10 foot reach. It's an increase of five feet. So again, if you have a reach weapon, it's getting even bigger right. than this. But if you're large and you have a reach of 10 feet, you threaten 32 squares about that. Um, and once you get to the end of this, <laughs> this subclass, you can reach size huge and your reach increases by 10 feet. So huge with a 15 foot reach you now can threaten about 72 squares this is it's just one of those things where we've seen them avoid this kind of design for a really long time and now you get to see why they've been avoiding it because it it, um it becomes quite a lot quite quickly um i don't know if i'm even that against it uh i think that you should definitely be able to get huge if you're a giant (laughs) subclass barbarian but uh it is it is one of those little things where you go "Ooh, let's this is this is unearthed arcana now imagine casting enlarge on that creature too (laughs) give it the sentinel feet too to stop anything in the so what you're <laughs> why are we complaining about this? This sounds amazing. <laughs> this is perfect. <laughs> so what you're saying is the extra damage on the thrown weapon it doesn't do much because they won't need to throw weapons. They just need to become big enough to uh like it's does true. that mean by time they get big enough, they can throw a creature 30 feet away and still melee attack it because oh, uh, it's still within yes. their reach. And then sentinel it. Uh, <laughs> so I think because of uh, where the the base reaches, throwing it thirty feet away is still further. <laughs> okay. But- I could mean, you, you're almost thinking of portals there, Ben. Yeah. That was so good. But what could you, could you like throw it awesome. sideways? You know, you throw it like from your right hand side to your left hand side. That's it's almost true. like you're passing you're it hand to hand. You're just juggling it. You're just, just yeah, juggling. exactly. Yeah. Just like, it's, come on, stop playing with your lot. food. Just kill it. Or yeah. <laughs> I really liked the elemental weapon though, whatever that thing was called. I liked sure. that for the barbarian. That was really cool. The thing that really interests me uh, about this isn't uh, isn't the mechanics. I mean, the mechanics are very interesting, but the the thing that leaps out at me is why giants now? Mm-hmm. We got Storm King's Thunder. Valuable back question. Twenty fifteen or something like that, pretty fairly early well. on, and we haven't really seen much other giant related content since then. It it makes me wonder. In fact, what other sort of really good giant related lore? is there in the D canon that exists right now the the war between the giants and the dragons is one thing and that got uh, invoked in rise of tiamat the giant ordning was invoked in storm king's thunder so what's next this this is an adventure right i'm assuming this is adventure related but i might be wrong all D&D books tend to have a sort of two to three year cooking time, which means that this was probably being planned back in 2020 or something like that. So the whole D&D team is, as we know, it is still involved. Chris Perkins is still involved. Uh, Jeremy Crawford, et cetera, et cetera. What more with giants do they have to do? Because I, I, I don't have the ghost of an idea. This is, I feel like you've just pointed out to me the ripples in the glass of water. <laughs> something approaches. <laughs> well, that's, I, I mean, I've become increasingly aware kind of since doing this podcast, really, um, and maybe a little bit before that, but the fact that every Unearthed Arcana 
really does forebode, you know, what a new release might be. And it feels like that timeline either, it's either because I'm more aware of it or that timeline actually has sped up. I remember we had a, a character play a Kensai monk all the way back in the day when that was just in Unearthed Arcana. And it felt like when that was finally featured in Xanathar's, it was like a year and a half later, which it might not have been. It might've been like six months, who knows? Do they always forebode something? Is there anything in Unearthed Arcana that kind of gets thrown away um, and not used? There, there has been plenty of stuff. I remember when there was a mass combat system fairly early on back in 2015 and Unearthed Arcana was very much a sort of testing ground, even more than it is today. I, I do think you raise a good point, Ben. The stuff that we see in Unearthed Arcana seems to have a higher rate of appearing in print mm. uh, than it did several years ago, um, which makes me think that it's it's less of a sort of public free-for-all like it may have been when Unearthed Arcana was very, very uh, nascent. But now it's more of a, we like this concept a lot. We've tested it a bit internally. And now we just want to make sure that the public likes it as well. Um, because This used to be true. I don't know if it's still true, but it used to be if anything in Unearthed Arcana got a lower than 70% public approval rating, hard cap or hard floor, it did not make it into a book. Under seventy percent did not make it into a book, and I think, and this was, you know, this was publicly stated. Maybe they're just putting stuff that they have greater confidence in uh, out in the end of their kind of, you know, testing grounds now. I, I poked at it a little bit today. Um, the the part, the giants part, didn't really uh, hit my brain as much as the elemental bit. So I uh, perhaps the the future place that it gets stuck uh, isn't that the giant is the theme, but the elemental items are the theme. I mean, we've had the, mm. the, the big elemental, was it the second or third uh, um, hardcover? Um, mm. So it's been quite a while since there's been that focus. I don't know if there's any campaign settings with an elemental feel where maybe uh, divine magic isn't a thing and uh, uh, the arcane problems have caused uh, terror across a, a plane or something. I don't know. Just mm. me me spitballing there it doesn't sound familiar i'm sure i don't know what you could be talking about <laughs> be, i don't know <laughs> there was a question just uh, while we're talking about um uh wizards of the coast stuff we talked a bit about mordenkainen's Mon- monsters multiverse mash uh last week but very much in the context of the monsters themselves um more so than the player races which mm. i have since um not read the book because who would do actual research um uh, but watched a video that somebody did kind of a breakdown of all the changes um and something that i think is quite interesting and there was a comment on last week's uh, uh video as well from nrm M-R-K-L, I'm not going to try to pronounce that because there's no vowels, um, <laughs> commented uh, that no, the okay. changelings are now fey uh, in... Yeah. Uh, and, and there's a whole bunch of changes like that, right? Like certain yeah. certain creatures have become elementals. Exactly. Um, this is an interesting change because, obvi- you know, I'm not the first one to point out that obviously it changes how things like Dominate Monster or Charm Person or those sort of spells yeah. um, even detect, you know, evil and good work against those sort of creatures. Is this a good change? Is this a bad change? I mean, it was a big deal when they did that for a couple of the player races in um, Theros. And there mm. was like this this kind of this ripple that went outwards of people being like, ooh, we have... Uh, some creatures that we've had before as playable races, like centaurs or whatever, because um, they showed up in Ravnica before then. And they previously were not categorized as Fae and now they are. And a lot of people then were unhappy with it, but I wonder whether we've just reached a point now where people are like, ah, it wasn't that big a deal. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe Wizards of the Coast are a little bit more free to just like go mm-hmm. for it. Yeah. Well, speaking of sizes, you know, we talked about how most player races are either medium or small. I felt like that was a specific thing, not just because of like 
the combat reach or, or the combat mechanics, but a lot of dungeons are, are sort of built in mind with medium creatures. So that large creatures may not necessarily fit inside some of the dungeons and be able to move around easily. Mm. Um, the creature types, it felt, were very specific that every player race was a humanoid so that the mechanics of the game functioned in a specific way where they were affected by charm person and not affected by, um, you know, turn undead, for example. Um, so is this like a destabilization of some of the those sort of rules? I, I think was it in Tash's it was kind of like they were both. It was like they're a humanoid and a fae. Um, they're mm. a, a, you know, humanoid and an undead. And now it's just like, nah, they are this thing. I don't recall if that happened in Tasha's or not. Um, I know, <laughs> I don't, very interesting that this is the thing that comes to mind. I remember in season seven of the Adventurers League, there were some effects that made you undead in addition to your current uh, character type. Sure. Um, so you could be a humanoid and an undead. And that the Adventurers League did stuff like that for the exact reasons we're talking about here, so that uh, hold person and other humanoid-specific effects will still affect player characters and not give them an easy out from fairly common debilitating spells. Um, it is a little strange, doesn't it? it? It seems like there was some very finely tuned stuff that made mechanics and lore go hand in hand in, in vanilla 5th edition, pl- vanilla Player's Handbook 5th edition, um, that's being changed now. And I'm very curious to see I feel like I'm going to say this every week. I'm very curious to see what this change in Mordenkainen's uh, bodes for the rules update in 2024. Yeah, uh, Will we see changes to spells like Hold Person that take in mind these changes that seem to be uh, harbingers of a new direction for the, you know, the core processes oh, what now? of 5th edition? A harbinger? A new direction. A new direction. A new direction. Yeah, I can't. Is that a callback? Uh... It's fine. The listeners will get it. Carry on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> cool. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. I feel like I stumbled into some what sort of said? snare. Some, some sort of trap. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody kicks open the door and runs in this and kidnaps is, James. Uh, this <laughs> is like a sixth grade joke. <laughs> well, anyway, I'll let the sixth graders laugh at this one. Um <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, I- I'm going to sound like a broken record uh, whenever we talk about Morton Canons because I-, I I feel like something is like most of the changes we're talking about here are going to have a knock on effect mm. that the developers are already thinking about right now. Um, and we're in some kind of awkward growing pains phases right now as this monster book, which if you ask me probably should have just come out two years from now uh, if they're making changes that will, you know, see the full effect of in, in, in time. But sometimes that's just the way business works. Inscrutable things happen for inscrutable reasons and we <laughs> wind up making the most of it. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting, right? Because um, mechanically, these kinds of approaches are fine. You know, you, you look at, um, it seems like a weird comparison, but I think it works. Um, lots of people complain about how many player races have dark vision, right? Yeah. Um, and, and you don't get to see that difference in play between, well, you just, you just have this divide. Some of the players in the party will be affected by this and some of them won't. And that is a fun thing to play with mechanically. And lots of people complain that that's not present. Um, the tricky thing is not that having that element or, or, you know, spells that affect some player characters and not others because they're humanoid or fae or what have you. That in itself is not, um, you know, it's not bad design or anything like that. The tricky thing is that so much of the game wasn't built that way. And yeah. now we have to lay it over the top. And I think I think James is right that um, it, it has something to do with the upcoming overhaul uh, because I don't think otherwise that you would necessarily take that kind of a risk. Yeah, it just makes me wonder whether they're going to, like is D&D 5.5 that they've teased and we might already know this, I don't know, but is that just going to be like a reprint of the player's handbook with all these new rules stacked in it? Is there going to be, like I think of um, charm monster, charm person, dominate monster, dominate person, as being these very specific spells that are at different levels. Like I think dominate person is like a, 
third level spell and dominate monsters like a fifth or sixth level spell because it's not intended that you can dominate so many creatures, I would assume. That is why there is that divide between them. Are they going to be pulled together into a single, like, dominate creature style spell um, that kind of uniforms it? Or is it just, you know, is it uh, going to be accounted into the balance of the game that, yeah, some some uh, members of the party are going to be completely immune to some effects and some of them are going to run away screaming when the cleric casts turn undead? Um, and you're just going to have to deal with that. Uh, Joe, what do you think? I, I, I'm having trouble uh, trying to picture what the future state is. Uh, in one of our uh, writing meetings last week, I kind of threw out we're, we're doing some high-level planning of, of future stuff, and I go, when's the, when's the next... And I wanted to say addition, but it's not really addition. The next decimal version of the <laughs> uh, the the game drop and, and how that's actually going to change. I'm I'm really curious how well they can thread the needle of um, upgrading the game in the the few areas that I think people see some issues with, without taking away some some of the. The guts. It's. I'm. I'm kind of happy. I'm not part of the design team because I think I, <laughs> I. I would be having a, a pull pull my hair out thing because oh we want to do this but but if we do that then all these things kind of get messed up and so I, I I don't envy their task of of trying to figure out a way to improve the version we have because it's it's done so incredibly well. Um, there are always things to improve on, but anything you touch. One group's going to be happy with it, and another group's going to be so angry that they touch their favorite thing that it's. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm glad I'm not making those changes. Mm. They'll be loudly angry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Our rules. It's, it's very funny because this is the exact same thing, the exact same sentiment we saw when D and D Next was being playtested. Yeah. Right. I remember there was a, there was a Penny Arcade comic talking about you know some sort of fictional Hasbro CEO saying, "All right, D and D audience, you know what is your favorite part about D and D?" And they get eight million different answers. And often conflicting, <laughs> completely, completely yeah. in the wrong direction, unmarketable ideas. And they're just like, what What can we do with this? So, yeah, yeah the designers the, the of Wizards are in an unenvi- unenviable position, in my opinion. It's a, a weird thing that I um, have become increasingly aware of since becoming a D&D YouTuber is this uh, concept that D&D YouTubers are sort of, you know, savants or, or you know, experts in D&D with hundreds of hours of play under their belt and they know the game inside and out and their word is, uh, you know, gospel in terms of, of how they've uh, presented <laughs> themselves. And I've become increasingly aware of like, I don't know that I disagree with that or I just made a video that sort of says this and now this person has made a video that says that or these two people seem to be completely contradicting each other, um, which I think is part of the tapestry of the game and and what makes uh, the the hobby and the community um, special is the fact that you can have a million different views and different people uh, get different things out of the game. But, uh, yeah, to your point, James, even among uh, the voices in the community, there's often divide in terms of what is good about the game. Well, we all we all play the game for for different reasons. Uh, some of us love the exploration. Some of us just give me the hack and slash. I want to get into combat. And then, hey, there's a whole bunch of people that want to just get into the role play bit. So, um, how do you satisfy all those different groups and even more different variances in terms of player uh, uh, player preference? Joe, you just reminded me of a sort of second part of this this question. I'm not sure if we read it aloud, but it, it was about um, the Monsters of the Multiverse version of this race becoming kind of the new norm for changelings in particular that kicked all this off um, and how it, it kind of conflicts with uh, what Eberron's lore about mm. changelings is. Um, I'm not enough of an Eberron buff to really dig into that, but it leads to a question of, well, can are the only races that are going to be published for D&D going to be ones that can fit in 99% of all settings? Um, Mordenkainen's uh, Monsters of the Multiverse certainly seems to be taking an approach of creating the sort of multiversal version of all of these races. Uh, and any sort of setting-based differences kind of seem to be sanded away Mm. in the book, Mordenkainen's Monsters of the Multiverse. And I think this kind of leads to the the clear-headed answer to this question, which is, 
since D&D's inception, we have had setting-based variants on races published in the player's handbook. A million different kinds of elves for every different kind of setting. That's the popular one. But there's a bunch of different kinds of dwarves, and so a lot of settings give humans nationalities that give them some bonuses to this, that, and the other thing. And those versions that appear in their own settings certainly aren't any less valid because there's a, a more genericized version that appears in the player's handbook. Um, I think that if you're playing in an Eberron game, and Eberron has lore that says one thing, and the changeling in uh, Monsters of the Multiverse says another thing, you're probably best off sticking with the version of the race that appears in the book that's specific to the setting you're playing in. The specific so, rule over powers the general rule. That, that old chestnut. The core of D&D, yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Are, are any other settings played in um, Adventurers League outside of Faerun or the Forgotten Realms? Because the only the the reason I ask is because that's not a way that I had thought about it, and I think that's a very good way to think about it in terms of um, yeah the the book Monsters of the Multiverse is about those creatures, monsters, and player characters in you know a multiversal context, as you said, Jay. I'm just repeating you now, but uh, <laughs> rules wise. In Adventurers League, you would, in theory, have to use the multiverse um, version. We talked about this a little bit last week. Is there any Adventurers League events that are ever set up within Eberron that that might or not? Yeah. Like- um, if I remember right, well, what a week to have Sean away. If I remember right, Sean Norman <laughs> was involved in Eberron Oracle of War, uh, which was a full Eberron Adventurers League campaign that I think is wrapping up right about now. It's been going on for the past couple of years. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. Uh, other than other than its name and its general general concept, I don't know too much about it. Yeah, uh, Eberron has its own whole scheme of stuff that you can do. Um, there, the with the dragon marked houses. There's a whole mm-hmm. layer of additional uh, bits that that can be thrown on top of your your standard character. Um, I, I think what what you said, James, is is the way I picture future campaign settings to do. They'll take the generic. Um, Warden Kanan's race or class or monster, and they'll put a flavor spin on it for the local setting. Um, all the uh, the dwarves in our region here are uh, farm yaks and spin their their yak wool into incredible tapestries that they sing songs to and, and uh, uh, roll over the, the realm. So I I'm sure it'll be a similar mechanic, or even something like in this setting, all of the dwarves are elementals. Uh, sure. And they all have elemental subtypings um, because they're, you know, they're born from the stone and some stone is hot and some stone, uh, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, what was I going to say? I just lost a thread. A thread of yak wool that could have been a wondrous <laughs> yeah. tapestry. Um, in some ways, I find it helpful. I mean, this might be just me and a bunch of other nerds. This is a nerdy podcast. Join me, nerds. I find it helpful to think about it kind of like um, Marvel's, the comic book um, version of multiverses, right? Like you've got your genericized setting that is just like, I, I defy the idea that, um, you know, the core, you know, player's handbook and stuff is devoid of setting, right? It yes. clearly has setting stuff attached to it. You can you can never remove that. That's just an incidental thing that will always happen. So that's your Earth 616. And then you get your sort of your offshoots and some of them will be really popular. So they'll get a lot of content like your ultimate universe, you know, like you, you just got to like move with it, go with it. It's fine. Everything's fine. And everything comes back to the Earth 616 because that's the core of the thing. But, you know, you're going to have all these other popular things that mm. uh, that also work and have their own rules and people will accept it and it's fine. <laughs> uh, your, your comparison here, Dale, is really interesting comparing, you know, the ultimate version of Marvel to the Earth 616 version of Marvel. And especially when you say that the, the player's handbook is not uh, setting neutral. The, the player's handbook is absolutely biased in favor of a setting in terms of its lore, and that's favor. Um, and it doesn't say it very explicitly a lot of the time because it kind of tries to trick us with quotes from Dragonlance and Eberron and other things kind of, you know, slipped in there, but it's a very Faerun-centric book. And um, I actually think that Monsters of the Multiverse is an attempt to create a more genericized version without that sort of Faerun connection that the player's handbook treats mm-hmm. as the default. The, the multiverse of D&D is being, uh, is being centered as the default of D&D. 
And mm. Faerun is kind of being returned back to its uh, proper place as just one D&D setting of many. Rather a forgotten than a sort area. Of, uh, yeah. A forgotten realm, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> Or Which, very by the way, also, <laughs> I think I think that's why it's important. It's not just because I'm a Marvel fan, but that's why I specifically went Marvel rather than DC. Because DC, of course, you have Earth Prime. Uh, it places that as like the the real setting, right? right? Whereas Earth Six One Six is it carries more of that vibe of like it's just one of many. It just happens to be the focus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there. I'm getting I, my nerd on today. I think. Uh, <laughs> Or I hope that repositioning of Faerun makes it honestly more appealing appealing to folks like me who uh, have called it in the past flavorless because it's everything flavored. Um, and that is a <laughs> personal opinion, mm-hmm. but I think it's because Faerun has been saddled with every new thing that kind of, like as soon as they were Warforged uh, introduced through the Eberron supplement, you betcha they were Warforged in Faerun um, or people playing Warforged in Faerun. Which brings us to an email uh, from Andy, who was, you know, we've kind of been talking about this email this this entire time, but to focus the discussion specifically on it, um, was asking about, um, you know, whether it will become the norm uh, for, uh, actually, let me just read the too long didn't read of his email. Will D&D games in future declare genres and in quotation marks, allowed resources more commonly than they have in the past, meaning that, um, for example, the Grim Hollow campaign that I'm running at the moment, I basically said to the players, these are the races that you can play. Any race in the Grim Hollow player's guide or campaign guide, no, player's guide they're in, um, and these select kind of races that are known to be present in this realm from the player's handbook. And I wanted to do that because I have a specific sense of tone that I want to capture uh, as part of the campaign. At the same time, you don't want to stop someone from playing the character they really want to play if they want to play a rabbit dude with a laser gun. Um, And so, you know, do do the three of you create, uh, you know, uh, campaign Bibles in quotation marks when you're running a campaign and say, okay, you can play these races, but not these ones, or these classes exist, but there's no paladins because the gods are dead or, you know, X, Y, Z. How, how specific are you about that stuff? Yeah, I think it depends on on the story. I, I know I've done that in the past for sure uh, in different campaigns where I said, okay, here's here's a subset of uh, things that you can play and, and how you can do it. Uh, just this this uh, last year, I got to play in a Lord of the Rings mm. D&D-based campaign and our GM, uh, Zach Goins, made uh exact sub table of hey you can be the if you're human you can be these guys if you're a halfling you can be those guys if you're a dwarf you can be this elves this and that was it um Mm. and it it really forced you to uh create a character that felt embedded into the the mythology of 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 the game that you're playing so Yeah. yeah i i absolutely think uh i don't think it's that much of a change i think it's just more apparent perhaps uh that um it'll it'll be uh there now i agree i do that a lot personally i don't think we're going to see a lot of it in official spaces um and i think part of the reason for that is that um wizards of the coast wants you to buy stuff right sure. so it if <laughs> if yeah. you are excited about a warforged and you can buy a book that gives you the ability to play a character who is a warforged um they don't want to stop you from buying that extra book right so i don't i don't think we're going to see a ton of that in official spaces but yeah like joe was saying i think i do that a ton i'm definitely that dm who's like this is the limitations boom go um but yeah i think that has been kind of the purview of home dms for always uh as far as i can tell that's kind of it's it's part of the fun of it um getting to to cater to your specific tastes um and the tastes of your players uh this touches on a thing i know i've whined about on this podcast before um but it it comes to the organization of materials in D&D Beyond and the fire hose of yeah. content one naturally <laughs> ends up drinking from when creating a character in D&D Beyond. Um, it makes me hope that uh, if Wizards is going to be creating a sort of, you know, multiversal version and then, you know, subversions in settings of, you know, races, classes, whatever, um, that 
now that they own D&D Beyond, there will be a greater effort made towards uh, allowing GMs to categorize content for their players to use. Yeah. If you create a campaign in D&D Beyond, you can make a link for someone to click on to say, join campaign with a new character that they create then. Mm. Um, if a GM could use some sort of system uh, when creating their campaign to be like, oh, and I will only allow content from this, 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 and this, uh, and deny use of content from all other things, then uh, then the 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 opportunity for say you know Jim's magic missile from Acquisitions Incorporated to show up in an otherwise you know dark fantasy game is significantly curtailed. Mm. Yeah, I, I do think it's interesting um, because because I am very excited by the concept of. Um, published adventures that are written for you that do that kind of thing where it, it is catered more specifically to a genre. But I also think that that is um, something that third party products often do really, really well. Um, mm. And I, I want that space to be for them. I don't, I don't really want sure. Wizards of the Coast to come into that zone. Um, that's maybe just a personal wish uh, more than an actual like definable, oh, they shouldn't for this very good reason. It's just, it's just me going, well, I don't know. I kind of like that, that that's a space for third party publishers to use. Um, but I also do wonder how, I mean, if if you start giving people settings and um, and adventures that cater that list for them, I don't think it, you're narrowing your audience a lot, right? Because because you are very rarely going to match your set of of limitations to the limitations that a DM or a table of players want. Yeah, true. I think that um, I think there's a lot of anxiety with GMs because uh, a lot of the advice that floats around out there, and this is kind of goes to what I was saying before in terms of the experts of YouTube having clashing opinions um, in terms of, you know, wanting to uh, be open. Yes, your players. Yes, and your players. Or, you know, allow the infinite possibilities of, of how this game is played to uh, bleed into the campaign that you're running so it's fun for everybody at the table. And I think that that creates a, a sense of anxiety in people who are just GMing for their home group in terms of like, am I a bad GM if I say no about things. I actually think that um, Matt Colville does a, a couple of uh, videos that are very liberating for GMs like myself where he did one on basically this very topic about should you restrict races within your campaign and additionally um, what types of people those races tend to be. Um, I think he was using the example of an elven pirate, for example. Uh, no elves are pirates in a, in a campaign he runs. Um, and it's... I think it's fine to do that as long as the the to, to capture a specific tone um, as long as it's what the rest of the table want. Um, Joe, you mentioned before about feeling like you were really part of the campaign world. And I think that's the problem from a player's perspective when you're trying to craft this specific feeling for this world, whether it's high fantasy, fey world, and everybody is an anthropomorphic creature or dark fantasy, you know, only humans and very little else. Um, if you decide to go the opposite direction, you do become this very like Aragorn, Gimli, Legolas, Bugs Bunny, uh, you know, <laughs> like it has this, this jarring vibe. So I don't think DMs should feel bad about wanting to, you know, having that dialogue with the players and being like, this is the atmosphere I want to try capture for this campaign. This is why I want to, to make these decisions. The other side of this, though, that I'm curious to get all your thoughts on is the mechanics, is the fact that like 5e is starting to um, feel the weight, I think, uh, and GMs are starting to feel the weight of the overburden of bloat that 5e is starting to get in conjunction that we hear a lot about what 3 and 3.5 experienced. And when you see the number of player races that are in Mordenkainen's, the list is like there was more in there than I remembered. I was like, oh yeah, bunny people. I forgot about that. Ben, you opened the show and you said that this is the number one uh, podcast of D&D. So I think that means if anybody listens and, and listens to your suggestions, they, they're pretty well set, right? They're, yeah. they, they've got the yeah. line on the way that they can play the game. Um, I, I, I think a lot of this, this discussion is not resolved, but maybe uh, not as 
a large of a problem if you have what's become uh, very common in recent games is that session zero where you sit down with your players and say, this is the type of game that I'm, I'm trying to play. And, and you talk through with the players what it is that they're looking for. And hopefully somewhere you can, you can come, to a, come to a happy medium of, uh, yeah, this, this is the game together that we're going to play and, and put. And so that you don't get uh, Elmer Fudd hopping around with uh, um, some Aragorn character telling him what to do. Um, so yeah, it's, it, that, that session zero goes a long way to help it's, resolve some It always things. comes back to the, the discussion. You gotta, mm. you gotta communicate. You mm. know, it's um, Colville in at least one of those videos that uh, Ben was talking about. He specifically says, you know, find out why your player wants to play that thing mm. and figure it out, right? Um, so Colville used to, as an example, not have tieflings in his setting. And then one day he was running a game, I think actually for Matt Mercer, and Mercer wanted to play a tiefling paladin. And Colville was like, mm, well, I don't really have tieflings in my setting. Let's see what we can figure out. And they came up with this compromise. And the result of that compromise wasn't just Matt Mercer got to play a tiefling in this game. The compromise ended up with there's now a way for tieflings to exist within this setting. Yeah. And, you know, in later games that took place within the same world, other players also got to play tieflings. You know, it's that communication and openness to, to change and and all those things. I, I also think it's very helpful as a GM to have multiple kinds of games you want to play so that you and your players have a better chance of finding something that you have common ground on. I'm a, a world builder who's very um, top-down world building and the general advice tends to be ground-up world building. Start with a single village and expand rather than the gods and the kings and the queens and go down because that um, top-down kind of approach tends to sort out every like little um, nook and cranny of your universe and leaves very little room for players to to invent because if you know who all the deities are and a player really wants to play someone who is devoted to Thor, um, suddenly they've got to figure out a way to, to fit within that setting. Um, I don't think that approach is bad. I, like I said, I use it and I really enjoy being a world builder and I think a lot of GMs get into that role because they love tinkering and building worlds. But as you just said, Dale, one thing that I have enjoyed is allowing players to add spokes to the campaign setting. And I've run the same campaign setting for four or five years across six or seven different campaign groups. And every time somebody adds something to the spoke, um, it becomes canon for the next group. Um, whether it's an NPC that gets made up on the spot, whether it's a new deity, whether it's a new race of people, um, it continues to make the world more detailed through the player's contributions rather than being like, no, this is mine. You can't you know, touch this. This is another great thing to talk about in session zero because I think uh, this ground up versus top down world building uh, isn't just something that the GM needs to kind of consider on their own in a vacuum, but it's also something to consider in what kind of game the players want to play as well. Um, I think ground up is your safest option. I think most players like to kind of come in with a concept and shape the world around it. And, you know, they, they have something they want to play. So let's find a way to make it work. But I also know players, I have one in my game right now that really likes uh, to know about the world and create a character that fits within it. You know, they're, they're, a, they're a scientist in their job. They have a very mm. sort of scientific way of thinking. And so they, they like to know the parameters of, of the world that they're playing in. And that's very fun uh, for this person. Um, so, you know, just, just going by the one size fits all metric is certainly a, a fine starting place. But as we keep talking about, it's communication, 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 D and D is not a complete game. The only way to complete it uh, is with the people who are going to be playing it. And you can't read their minds. You simply cannot. <laughs> there is no as much as you, you think you well. can. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't there fall you. into that trap. Yeah. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. No, Dangerous. that's it's interesting because once you mentioned that, I realized that's the kind of player I like to be. I like to find out about the world, find a little like cranny of it that interests me and just dig in. I want to have that conversation about like, how can we explore this 
I don't know, thieves guild faction that you've created. That's what I like to do. But I still came into my first uh, couple of campaigns, assuming that my players wanted to do the ground up. This is my character and I'll make the world around you. But that ended up being really tricky with those players because I think that fewer of them were interested in that. Or maybe maybe they would be now, but at the time they were new. So they were a bit, you know, more spooked by the concept of coming up with it all uh, and building the world around them. But certainly at the time, it was very difficult um, to to get kind of backstory or world details, even in a small sort of scope uh, going because the, no one on either end was wanting to, you know, step on each other's toes by creating stuff, yeah. um, which can be really difficult and definitely hampers the communication that we're talking about. <laughs> Just For say sure. what you want and then you can move on from there. Compromise comes after saying what you want. I had uh, two gentlemen that wanted to hire me to be their GM a couple of years ago when I was doing it professionally. And I never had a group do this before. It was a funny experience because they really wined and dined me. You know, they were like, come out, let's have lunch. Let's talk about the campaign. <laughs> let's talk about like your style of GMing, how you run it. And then uh, we did that. And then that we did some emails back and forth with further questions that they had. Like it was this, it was like they were um, deciding whether they want, I, I don't even have a comparison off the top of my head, but it was like, you know, this is a really serious purchasing decision that we need to, you know, like they were buying a house and I was the real estate agent. Um, but ultimately they decided not to for the reason, and I thought this was quite interesting, uh, that because I use a homebrew campaign world that is my own, they can't go and dive into a Wikipedia and learn everything there is to learn about the world because it simply doesn't exist. It's all it's oh, all up in here. There was no campaign guide. There was there was nothing for them to, you know, you, you can learn about all the isolated villages in the Forgotten Realms, particularly on the Sword Coast, but there's law for for the entire continent, you know, uh, uh, that, that can get quite detailed. And that's what they wanted to be able to know where their character was from, where they grew up, why they would have a certain an affectation, um, what kind of cultural um, idiosyncrasies would they have as a result of their upbringing? Um, and, I, yeah, I just thought that was an interesting um, an interesting level of specificity that they wanted in the experience they were going to have. I'm just fascinated by these people, uh, <laughs> by, by this couple in particular, uh, not because what they wanted is unusual, but because uh, you've created such a vivid image of them in my mind. I'm just like, I want to know who are, who are they playing D and D with now? Where are they playing? Yes. What setting yeah. are they using? <laughs> what are their characters? Did they just want all that information so they could craft the world's best backstory? Yes. Or do they want their characters to be like sort of lore masters in that way? Oh, I'm so curious. You've created two people who I'll never know <laughs> in my mind. It's, it's and awesome. I just have to live with that. It's yeah. It's also interesting to me because I um, firmly believe, I don't know whether it's true, but I firmly believe that uh, the only way to play in the perfect game for you is to run it. Um, Mm. I don't think you will ever find a GM who can run the game that you want to be in. So you end up having to be that GM. So it's interesting to hear about the kind of people who it's like, I bet one of them is going to end up running this game. Yeah, you're probably right. That's where I put my money. You're probably right. (laughs) But a lot of people, I think for them specifically, to add more fidelity to my description of them, it was that they wanted to have the experience rather than um, craft the experience, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I think that's why Mm -hmm. a lot of people get entrenched in wanting to be a player. Mm I've I have oft wondered about them nowadays as well, James. Yeah, and like, track them down. Uh, get them whether, on this show. Uh, we need an interview. <laughs> <laughs> whether they are uh, like what 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 the other players are, who the other players are at their table as well. Because uh, yeah, it was just this the two. Is probably of them at the why time. they wined and dined you so hard as well. They were like, yeah, we they really got to find the perfect GM. They uh, they showed up at uh, like public tables that we were running and were like, we want to be on your table because we want to get an experience of like what it is that you, uh, you know, just a snapshot of, of your style, um, which was interesting. This, this is a, a really short tangent, but uh, it, this discussion made me think of it when you talk about people who want to show up for the experience and... It is, a, it is a common saying among GM advice to not railroad your players. And I don't disagree with that. But I think a lot of people... I do it, a bit. Wow, full body reaction to that one. Um, <laughs> We're all um, like, get on the train, choo-choo! But, but I, think, uh, I think a lot of people 
get a little bit overzealous when it comes to published campaigns about yeah. what is a railroad and what isn't. Yes. Uh, when Horde of the Dragon Queen, I, uh, now repackaged as Tyranny of Dragons, as an anthology, came out, there was a lot of bad press for that adventure because it was a very linear adventure. And I think it's had a critical reevaluation lately. Horde of the Dragon Queen is a pretty damn good adventure. It has a bit of mechanical quibbles because it was being made while 5e was being made. But even though there's not a lot of room for deviation from the linear course of the adventure, it doesn't mean it's a railroad because, you know, your player's actions are still not scripted. Um, it's, it's purely a matter of, uh, again, what fits the play style of the group? Do the do the player characters want to have an adventure that has a that has a fairly clear story that they should, uh, you know, embody and follow, or do they want a more open world adventure? And those two things are equally good. Mm. And a linear adventure is not a railroad. Anyway, mm. that's my soapbox that you that you you know you triggered my trap card on. Well, it. my my full body reaction was in honesty in agreement with you because like that that. <laughs> advice of like don't railroad the players i think is such a it's a bludgeon that gms hit themselves over the head with and we talked about it in our very first uh episode which is called uh, rivers and uh pools because uh james you talked about that design um mm-hmm. ideology of creating you know open spaces to explore and then rivers that flow through to the next space um mm-hmm. i've been calling it the open road philosophy which is mm. the idea that the adventure has a goal for the players to, mm. to seek and they might find the the end of the goal that they want to have, the ending, if you will, one of 29 endings in Fallout New Vegas or whatever, um, but they can bounce around and make the choices and their ending will always be unique to them as a player group because their choices are going to be more specific than what is possible in a video game. But um, it still had like this campaign is about a civil war between these two factions, you're going to have to choose a side or you're going to have to, you know, run or whatever it is, but that this story is going to evolve kind of with or without you because it's a living world, but you get to decide how you're going to influence the story and what the end result of the story is because, you know, you, you will, you are the main characters. You are the ones that Mm -hmm. the story will bend around. I was going to ask Joe and James, because uh, we've, we've been talking so much just now about uh, the the idea of like how do you make this stuff fit between the compromise of the players and and the and the GM, but like how do you reach that kind of compromise when you're organizing a writing team for an adventure yeah. or series of adventures? <laughs> well, Joe, you've been doing that lately. Yeah, I uh, I find if you put on a wall. Uh, picture of a donkey and you put blindfolders on and then you start throwing uh, uh dark, i guess that i'm mixing games together there um for me because i i'm actually starting to work on fables 3 which will be out in january of next year it's pretty exciting um the uh the the approach that i took is i created a thousand foot high level story there's six parts in these six parts, something will happen. It should start here and it should end here. What happens in the middle? You as the writer, come and tell me the, the, the exciting, how you, how you follow that path there. Um, and, and by doing that, I, I can sort of shepherd the story to get from A at the beginning to Z at the end of uh, episode uh, six. Um, the, the thing I... Recently, I, I did a freelance job earlier in the year where I, I had to write a urban adventure. And that for me was utter terror because uh, it's, it's, it's not like a dungeon where you can put little walls and funnel your characters through uh, 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 certain areas and really cut down on the, the options that they, they can go through. It was, uh, you have to give the illusion of choice to your players with their choices falling forward to an outcome that you hope they'll get to. How they get to it could vary, but you Mm. want to get to the big bad evil guy at the end and have some sort of confrontation. How they confront them, and maybe they have allies, maybe they don't, depends on the choices that that people make. But um, what was your question? (laughs) (laughs) You you answered it. It was about basically writers to have the same sort of, tone and genre and uh yes. you know 
Yes, I ramble along that uh, river. I think you're on the hook too, uh, James. What, what was your thoughts? Oh no! Now I have to reveal I don't know I anything and then make me up as I go along. <laughs> <laughs> um, when it comes to organizing a team of writers, perhaps uh, unsurprisingly, communication is a major part. Major part of it. Uh, just like your, just like your writers on a, on a RPG project are co-creators, uh, so too are, are a DM and their players in a D&D campaign. The organization just needs to be tighter when you're doing a thing with writers. Uh, like one one thing that happens on Fables, and Joe will be aware of this as he's planning it right now, is uh, we have all of the writers outline what they're working on uh, based on some guidelines that we've set up at the beginning. And then we have a, a we have a segment where we get all the writers in one room virtually uh, and they talk to each other uh, about their outline. They'll, they'll just tell them what's in their outline. And then by having everyone in the same place and listening and, uh, and being attentive to the work that their fellows are creating, uh, it winds up uh, people notice things that are either perfect matches by serendipity, perfect matches by design or uh, things that don't quite fit together. Uh, or things that don't quite fit together, but could be great if we just change this, or we have to throw this out. And all all of a sudden, you've got a lot of creative minds working in tandem. And if you've got a team that works really well together, uh, magic happens. Mm. And you end up getting a story that started from six or more disparate places, but winds up being unified in the end. It's like um, conducting an orchestra for you, James. Yes, except you're uh, except you don't have sheet music. <laughs> <laughs> well, they bring their own sheet music, and <laughs> it's a jazz orchestra. Yeah, yeah, they they, they have changes, right? <laughs> they, they've got jazz chord changes, and everything else is improvised. Yes. <laughs> well, I think that is just about going to bring us to time on this week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel, or if you're listening on an audio platform, five star ratings would be hugely appreciated as it gets us. Out out to more listeners uh leave reviews go tell your friends spread it like a zombie virus or a magical zombie plague if you're playing in a fantasy realm anyway we'll be back next week i've been ben burn here with james Haig, <laughs> dale kingsmill and joe rasso thanks so much for joining us joe uh, and we will see the rest of you next week uh, we're gonna and we're gonna end on a laughter fade out like we're yeah. an episode of the classic star trek <laughs> oh, oh. And then everybody freeze frame. (laughs) Yes.